Welcome to the Aquila Report and Weekly Review. Uh, it's uh, our privilege each week uh, for Paul Harrell and myself, Dominic Aquila, uh, to come to in this podcast to you and uh, uh, to be able to go over the top uh, articles, the top 10 in our case, uh, that you as the readers uh, provided us um, to discuss. And it's a way of us getting you, making you aware of what's coming. It comes out in the newsletter each Tuesday. And you get the newsletter by going to theacolareport.com and clicking on uh, subscribing to the newsletter, and it will come into your inbox every Tuesday. And these are uh, the the ones that you, as the readers, have clicked on the most each as you read day by day. And uh, we just have put them out there for those who don't come regularly, or just to just sort of of interest to say what is it that our readers are interested in. And it's always a Something I enjoy looking to see if I was able to pick what might be on the reader's mind. So anyway, uh, we come in this weekly review and uh, Paul and I have the privilege of sort of giving you an advance and a tease. And hopefully it will help you and as you decide what you want to read and explore a little bit more, maybe using your Bible study group or sharing with other people. And so, Paul, uh, this is a great week. Uh, another one here on Monday, the April 12th. Yeah. And as uh, so we come this, together. This week's top 10 list, though, is really a credit to the intelligence of the Aquila Report readers, because some of these articles are pretty deep. And um, I don't know, I my attention span, my limited attention span was on full display as I was reading the top 10 <laughs> list this week. So hats off to the intelligence of uh, Aquila Report readers. Well, I say this all the time, and I mean it sincerely, that it that we have a very discerning readership. Uh, they want to be informed. Uh, they don't want to be spoon-fed. They're not mind, uh, uh, you know, mon- uh, uh, see, uh, mind-numbed robots is what I'm going to say, and uh, they 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 like to challenge. And so at times, and I always say this as well, and, and it's in our disclaimer statement at the bottom of each page on our site, that uh, sometimes we don't publish things that we necessarily agree with editorially. However, the the article deals with something that is of such importance, and it's maybe taking a contrary view that our readers might not uh, really accept, uh, but they're hearing it directly. It's not being filtered, uh, and it's uh, something that's maybe around the next theological or cultural corner, and we need to be aware of it and hear it from somebody who's already uh, seems to be uh, promoting that. So we don't do that often, but we do it enough that uh, I have confidence that our readers are able to discern it. So thank you for recognizing that, Paul, and let's get started. And no, I want to just I'm going to do something we don't try and do that often. But uh, articles number one and three, the first and the third articles really tie together. So we're going to sort of deal with them together if we can. Um, And this deals with a very sad story uh, about a Rock Hill, South Carolina doctor and his wife and uh, two grandchildren and uh, then a couple of workers that were killed by a neighbor. Uh, gunshot wounds, and uh, he the re- part of the reason why this is of interest to our readers is that uh, Dr. Robert Leslie, who was the uh, doctor in the involved, and his wife Barbara uh, are members of the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, the ARP, and we have quite a few uh, 
members of the ARP that read are regular readers of the Aquila report. And uh, this came as a shock to them. Uh, Dr. Hill, uh, I mean, Dr. Leslie was involved very deeply in the uh, not only uh, in the community as and as a doctor, but also in the church, very active with Camp Joy, which is one of the uh, ministries of the uh, Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, uh, ministering to children with special needs, uh, using their uh, camp and conference ground in Bun Clark in North Carolina. So it, it was just a real sad. It came, obviously, out of the blue. Uh, it was not expected. And so the report uh, was that uh, Dr. Leslie and his wife two grandchildren and a and two workers now one worker was for a long time was just uh, right after the incident was injured but uh, he has since uh, died from the result of the wounds that he received and uh, so the, the the so the first number one article is people uh, readers reading uh, on this and there is an explanation uh, editors note dr robert leslie was an elder in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church, ARP, one ARP member remarked he was involved in Camp Joy and many other things around our denomination. And another recalled, my first memory of Dr. Leslie was hearing him play bagpipes at the wake-up call for Camp Joy at Bon Clarken. So you have uh, him involved even to the point of um, uh, waking people up with the bagpipes instead of, I guess, the trumpet sound. And that's uh, interesting. So he uh, lived in Rock Hill, uh, which is uh, right across the line from Charlotte, and he had offices in Charlotte as well. Uh, and so it's a very uh, sad uh, story that um, we read, uh, you know, with uh, regard to Dr. Leslie and his wife, Barbara, and the two grandchildren that uh, passed away. Yeah, and this, uh, many of you may not know that this, you know, the the part of the story you might have heard on this in mainstream press was that the uh, suspect who committed the murders was a former NFL, uh, you know, professional football player uh, named Philip Adams, who uh, I believe killed himself. You know, so he, he shot these five and then killed himself. Uh, if, if that if this story doesn't, you know, specifically ring a bell, that's what we're talking about here. Um, Dr. Leslie, though, uh, wrote a book, published a book called Angels in the ER. Uh, it was in 2008, and uh, this is uh, what he said about it. Quote, I've been an observer of human condition as well as a physician. There's no better place to be an observer than the ER. You find out what people are about. Everybody has something to teach us. I wanted to do this from a spiritual perspective. Once that became clear to me, it wrote itself. Talking about this book, Angels in the ER. Mm. So it seems Great. like he led a full life, even though it ended in this tragedy. Yes, uh, absolutely. Everyone uh, that I've spoken to that knows him. And then after this event took place, and one of my uh, children uh, told me that one of the children of Dr. Leslie and uh, his wife, Barbara, uh, actually live in their community in Georgia where they are, and they know them. They uh, Their kids went to uh, participate in the same sports and other things in the uh, community. It's a small community. And so they became even more personal uh, because uh, of that uh, relationship that I found out once the uh, matter, once this happened. So uh, it, it just, uh, you can imagine the the, the weight of just the sorrow 
uh, the of the members in the Associate Reformed Presbyterian Church. Now, in the the letter, the four children, their four uh, Leslie children, they wrote on behalf of uh, the family. And the sheriff of York County, uh, South Carolina, read this at a, one of the briefings that he gave to the uh, media. And uh, then the letter was published. And he it was interesting that he read the whole thing. Not all everybody, uh, not all the me, uh, national media anyway, picked it up except one that I remembered it. So we got a hold of it and we did publish it. So that's article number three. So if you want to read that, uh, it's uh, there. Uh, a statement from the family of Robert and Barbara Leslie. Uh, here's the sort of the main paragraph. While while we know there are no answers that will satisfy the question why, we are sure of one thing. We do not grieve as those without hope. Our hope is found in the promise of Jesus Christ, and we are enveloped by peace that surpasses all understanding. To that end, our hearts are bent toward forgiveness and peace toward love and connectedness, toward celebration and unity. We honor all those involved in this story with prayers and compassion, especially, especially for the Shook family, which is one of the uh, 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 men who, uh, uh, maintenance men who's working, and the Lewis family, uh, and the Adams family. So the uh, they, they covered the waterfront, but the part about, uh, quoting from Paul, we grieve, but not as that, those who have no hope, our hope is found in the promise of Jesus Christ. And the first time I heard it was uh, when the sheriff read this uh, and uh, on, you know, on the air. And I just amazed at what a testimony so Amen. that even though dead, they still speak. And the Lord is uses the wrath of men to praise him. And so. Uh, <laughs> Amen, Dominic. I couldn't have said it any, any better. Yeah. And, and, so, and it's a very encouraging. Yeah. Uh, and again, you know, what. Um, what the enemy meant for evil, God can mean for good. God can turn it uh, to worship Himself, and and uh, man, just such a such a like you said, such a great testimony and and really encouraging. Right, and so we encourage you to read it. That in the midst of the their deep grief, this family was able to compose this kind of statement. That of course was speaking from their hearts, and they weren't just uh, mouthing pieties. They were they sincerely meant this. And uh, and it's such an encouragement to others of us as we ever face any kind of conflict or disturbance, uh, disruption in our family life or just in our own lives, uh, that if we, if we're, Christ is really in the center, then we need to uh, honor that. So read uh, our, the number one and number three uh, uh, articles when you receive your newsletter tomorrow. Well, we move in a different direction with number two. The second most read article, um, written by Thomas Kidd, Dr. Kidd, uh, teaches uh, history at uh, Baylor University, uh, and um, he writes occasionally on the uh, Gospel Coalition uh, site, blog site, and his title is Denominations, colon, to leave or to not leave. And uh, he realizes that there's a lot of, uh, he, he's a historian, so he's writing with sort of the historical side of that equation, and by the, it's interesting. We will have another article in the top ten that also reflects historically on some uh, other movements, uh, some other disturbances. So we'll get to that in just a moment. Um, 
it's the uh, but it's when is it appropriate to leave, especially if there are things that are really taking place, whether it's in a local church, whether it's in a denomination. Uh, he says the easiest decisions come when a denomination starts teaching doctrines or advancing moral positions that contradict longstanding widely agree upon uh, Christian orthodoxy or orthopraxy. If a denomination's leadership can countenances universal salvation, questions of the historicity of the physical resurrection of Christ and so forth, it, uh, t- it's time for us to get out. So those are the sort of the uh, markers or the lines in the sand type of things. But it's then he goes on to say, but it gets hard to decide whether to leave a denomination based on ethical or political lapses by denominational leadership. So by lapses, it's not that it's, you know, there's not the full bore type of thing that he just mentioned in the previous paragraph. So he says, I'm certainly not comfortable with the way that certain Southern Baptist leaders seem to uh, make support for Donald Trump, a litmus test for good standing within denomination, but that doesn't require a person to leave the denomination. So he's using the equation of uh, physical do you believe that Jesus physically rose from the dead versus just your uh, predilection to a certain person, a politically or a social issue? And so he says, then it gets a little not at, it's not as clear. Um, so it, it it's interesting that the re, I wouldn't have, I didn't pick this one. I, I remember approving it to go to be put on the Accord report. And I said, well, this is, you know, people are wrestling with this in different denominations and local churches, but I didn't expect it to be number two. Yeah, uh, yeah. And in fact, I didn't even expect it to be on the top 10. So that says, <clears throat> you know, putting the finger to the pulse, uh, you know, there's some more racing pulses out there. Than well, yeah, I, I, I think aware. I think what it also says is, uh, and this is from the article, uh, I think this would reflect maybe uh, the feelings of the readers of the Equal Report, our commitment to our local church is of a higher order than our commitment to a denomination. Some of the same standards apply when considering whether to leave a local church as a denomination. However, in some forms of aberrant theology or moral teaching would, in my view, necessitate departure. It becomes more complex when your congregation is holding the line, a la many Methodist congregations, while the national leader leadership drifts from orthodoxy. If you know that your donations to the church are being used to support heterodox beliefs or heterodox beliefs and practices in the larger denomination, it is tough to justify staying in that church. Mm-hmm. That's that's and that's a, a, a question that everyone wrestles with. And uh, so like he uh, Dr. Kidd mentions, uh, it's uh, you know, if it's just right, just breaks all the boundaries of perceived orthodoxy and orthopraxy, that is the practice of the true religion, then it, the decision easier. If it's a sort of in the, you know, broad middle, it's sort of hazy shades of gray and that creates different problems. And so the question is whether or not it's redeemable. Uh, and he suggests making sure that you look carefully at the what the issues are. Uh, before you take action. So it was a, it wasn't encouraging staying. It wasn't leaving. It just says, do your work, do your evaluation, be discerning when you're taking this action. So I think that's probably what stirred within uh, the readers. And it's showing also that it was scratching an itch that um, is happening up in the general broad church right now, more so than we're probably even aware 
becoming more aware of in different denominational groups or local churches. So, but that was number two, when to leave a church or denomination. Uh, number three, as we already said, is the statement from the family of Dr. and uh, Mrs. Leslie. And uh, so we, and what a wonderful statement that was. Okay, and so now number four is uh, an article on autopsy of the YRR movement. That's the Young, Restless, and Reformed. The Young, Restless, and Reformed was a movement that uh, sort of broke out in the early 2000s and really sort of hit the church and culture with a bang, uh, where young folks who had sort of uh, broken away from the church at large, uh, they uh, all of a sudden started coming back and buying into uh, of Calvinism and liking the sort of five points of Calvinism. And it was sort of the new, um, as I like to say, the latest skirt shashing down the road and people were enthralled with it. Uh, so, but the, the movement, uh, is fell apart and it's, there are some who are still part of it in terms of, uh, continuing and strengthening it, but a goodly number of it as a movement, uh, has fallen apart. And so this is an autopsy by Michael Leake. He says, I would argue that part of the issue with fundamentalism is an inability to leave the growth of another believer in the hands of the Lord. And that was uh, what he says, sort of one of the pull quotes on this deals with how uh, the, uh, the, the, the movement sort of uh, became a litmus test uh, to test out anybody else's Christianity, whether how valid it was and so forth, because they had been so enthralled and swept up with something that was exciting to them. And they sort of used that as the litmus test or the plumb line to judge everybody else's Christianity. He says, uh, because Christ has long since acted decisively for my brother before I could begin to act, I must leave him his freedom to be Christ's. I must meet him only as a person that um, that he already is in Christ's eyes. And it's a quote from Bonhoeffer. And he says, all of the unhealthy cases of church discipline gone wild, spiritual abuse, cult, personality, etc., that can be traced back to a failure on this is can be traced back to a failure of this very principle that uh, Leek is quoting from Bonhoeffer. And it, I believe, has led to our fracture as a movement. The uh, young restless reform is no more because it viewed itself not as a part of the, quote, the one holy Catholic and Christian or Catholic church, the universal church, but as a school of piety. And in doing this, it could not allow others to just be Christ's to belong to him. <laughs> and that's usually where, so in other words, they exalted themselves. The, the, the nature of the movement was sort of, you know, it was, they were sort of liberated in themselves with what this new theology was for them. It's an old theology coming out of the Reformation, for sure. The Reformation, a rediscovery of uh, God's grace and the principles of uh, justification by faith alone. But, uh, so all of a sudden they it grabbed them and it multiplied and had its effects, but it splintered um, into different ways and it uh, sort of went off on a tangent that was never from which it never came back. So it started out as good, and then grew in its enthusiasm, and then began to falter because now that became they created a new plumb line. And as uh, 
leak says that they really didn't identify as they should have as part of a broader body of the Lord Jesus Christ, and they saw themselves something almost parachurch, uh, uh, next to the church, but not part of it, and that created a, a whole lot of problems. So uh, it's an instructive uh, lesson uh, for all of us to learn yeah. uh, you know, on this. Well, you know, just interesting story about this. So I was, you know, I guess newly reformed, you know, several years ago, and I had no idea about the young, uh, restless and reform movement, had no idea. And I was in just a conversation with uh, somebody as I was going about my, you know, my work, my career. And, uh, you know, we were talking about God and and uh, the Bible. And, you know, just it was a it was a really good conversation. And then, you know, Calvinism came up and I said, well, yeah, you know, I'm 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 a Calvinist. And he was like. I thought you were part of that young, reformed, and restless movement because you have a beard. <laughs> and I, you said you look just like one of those. I was like, I don't even know what you're talking about. I, don't, I didn't even know about the movement. You know, I, I was just, you know, being, you know, I was just under the teaching of somebody who was who was preaching the gospel every Sunday. You know what I mean? And I was discovering things and. Uh, and anyway, just in hindsight, I just think that's so funny reading this article and. And uh, you t- you know, talk about the accusation here is that it was operating out of piety. Well, this guy certainly thought it was because he took one look at me and thought I was associated with them anyway. Well, that and that's an important thing. You see, sometimes you develop sort of, uh, you know, the monikers, you, know, you, you have the thought pattern and then there's a certain way to dress so the words that you speak. And um, in your case, they also the facial hair. And so. They uh, you sort of get into the whole buy into the system. Uh, usually when you have a thought pattern, uh, you you are it does affect the way you think. It gives you a new framework and then it filters down to the heart so that it, it works its way out in living. But if it is a structured kind of thing so that now you're being put into a new box, which is what apparently in this autopsy is determining. Yeah, there was a specific box. So you had to speak a certain way, have a certain piety. You had to use certain language, even to the point of what clothes you wore and how you're, whether or not you would have facial hair. And <laughs> when you, when you go down, drill down that deeply to the point where you're, it's, it becomes an abuse of the personal liberties that uh, Paul talks about in the scriptures where believers are uh, to recognize their uniqueness in Christ as a part of the whole so that we have both our individuality, but we are also part connected to the body. Uh, and th- this is usually uh, just from fact of teaching church history. So many years as I have that movements you are even within the church are really human movements that they have. Uh, uh, they start up because there's a need, but then after a while it, they take on their own identity in such a way that it, it contradicts, sort of the history of the church. So it starts out in the church and then it begins to contradict it and it becomes very intense and nobody is able to live up to the, that level of intensity. And so it begins to crash. And you can go back and see in the ash heap of history, uh, if we had time to review that uh, in every generation, going back to from the first century all the way to the present, uh, then movements that just, lit the flame, the big fire, enthusiasm, uh, great numbers. And within 10, 15 years, uh, they're 
on the ash heap. So uh, this is just an autopsy of a movement that looked like it, you know, started off good, great theology. Uh, it was holding to some of the historical norms, but it had some seeds in it that were part of its own demise. And well, I think mm-hmm. Mike Leake does a good job in helping us understand that. Well, speaking of speaking of movements in the ash bin or dust, dustbin of history, the next article is about a, a movement or a tool that a lot of churches use. Right. And uh, the uh, so number five is the anagram uh, goes to church and the angels are not rejoicing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so this right. And this is another uh, thing, a movement uh, that people have um, bought into a great deal and it's having its uh, impact in the life of the church. Uh, but here's uh, Marcia Montenegro who herself had, came out of an occult background and she sees, and now she's a believer, an Enneagram, uh, a lot of the kinds of thoughts and motions and even language, wording that uh, she said was very much a part of the new age and the occult and in terms of how it moves. And it's uh, the, so she gives us very serious critique. Now this is just an article, but there are books that um, she, uh, uh, you know, refers to that goes into it more. Uh, the the um, and so that we can, you know, it can be explored. So if you're personally intrigued by it, if your church is involved in it, this would be an article to start with, and then look at some of the uh, things that uh, Martian Montenegro speaks about here, because I think it. Uh, the this, the latter part of this article title and the angels aren't rejoicing because she is saying this is not something that the church ought to be doing and now at this point this be probably uh, you know as people have not you know in the churches maybe our readers and so forth uh, have not even questioned it sounded good because they used a lot of uh, Christian language. Uh, in it, and it's pointed out in the um, article, uh, how about, you know, trying, you know, finding your true self and identity. So it's using all the language that is very common in Christianity. However, uh, that when you really put it under the microscope and look at it from where it's come, look at its history, uh, it's something you really should consider very carefully before you keep going and study it very carefully um, and be, be, you know, just what, in other words, this is just a, a blinking red light to be mm-hmm. careful. Um, I, I think it's so interesting because, uh, you know, here you have somebody who, who, you know, comes from an occult background is now a believer, you know, and then we see, sees that the churches are, you know, being swayed by this Enneagram movement. Uh, and essentially what she's saying is it's pagan, you know, Gnostic, occult, new age, you know, whatever. It's essentially, that's what she's saying is that th- there's a lot of uh, similarities. And, um, you know, I've, I always had a problem. I'm really glad this article informed, really helped me because I've always kind of rejected like here, um, you know, you're a new believer, take this, uh, this test that we've, you know, this and fill out this survey and we'll tell you what your spiritual gifts are. And my, I've never thought to, you know, associate it with, you know, Gnostic occult or new age, but I, I've always had a a problem with it because I'm like, hang on, wait a second. You mean I'm going to, I'm going to take a test that's basically created by man, um, you know, ink on a paper. I'm going to fill this out, and you're going to tell me the spiritual gifts that God has given me. 
who do you think you are? You know, that's kind of been my in 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 internally. I'm like, w- do you really know what we're even saying? You know, like take this test. It's it's so um, I don't know transactional. You know what I mean? And it just doesn't feel uh, genuine. And um, you know, this article is at least helpful. Maybe maybe some of you out there disagree. You know, with with this uh, claim. Um, but it, regardless, you know, give it a read. So it is. Uh, so it's number five. So it has touched uh, a nerve because of how many people read it uh, and does need to be explored. And the they're they're not over the top. So just like the young restless and reformed got challenged and they really weren't able to survive. It may be that uh, the passion and drivenness of Enneagram will also uh, be challenged uh, to the point where it will uh, lose uh, it's uh, hold what perceived hold on the life of the church. So give give a good read on that. Okay, so now you see we come to number six, and this is the, an article by uh, John McWhorter, uh, who we've run around before, who doesn't you know he claims to be on the progressive wing, but he's one of those guys I enjoy reading because he does challenge. He he keeps up with. Uh, the trends he um, is eloquent in the way he writes Uh, he's uh, he's a thoughtful person and so it's always a good read whether I agree with some of his outcomes or not and he starts out with the elect a threat to a progressive America from anti-black anti-racist Paul unpack that what does anti-black anti-racist mean Um, I was I get sort of Mixed up when you put too many antis. <laughs> yeah, I mean that that's that's confusing to me as well. I mean, I know what anti-racism is. You know, anti-racism is being uh, you're not just opposed to racism, but if you're anti-racists, you are opposed to the system allegedly that you know promotes it, and you need to be actively working to tear it down. So if you just say in the progressive thought, you know, realm of thought, if you just say, you know, well, I'm not racist. Okay, that's all well and good. But if you're not anti-racist, you're actually racist because you need if you're just not racist, but you're not doing anything to uh, help marginalized people who are victims. Uh, this is just me telling you what they say, who are victims by, you know, uh, systemic racism that's in every one of our systems and government and everything else. Then you are being complacent, which makes you racist, even though you're not racist. You know, you haven't done anything wrong, even though you're caught, con- you know. You have to be actively, uh, you know, you have to be actively dismantling racist structures. That's what anti-racism is. Okay. Now, put it that together, and I thank you for explaining that because I think it's uh, good. So the, if you are an anti-racist, now what McWhorter is talking about in his title is your, uh, it's an anti-black anti-racism so that those who hold up the theory of I'm an anti-racist against any form of it, he is saying they actually uh, are the very ones who are promoting racism against uh, blacks, at least in the uh, culture, in our culture where we have the, um, you know, black, uh, uh, you know, large proportion of black individuals. And so he basically says that um, for one example, one might imagine a lot of these, let's see, no, that's not the one, or here it is, or one might imagine just, uh, just maybe that one third of the white kids are committing a disproportionate amount of the assaults, but other studies reveal that it's indeed black boys who are responsible for a disproportionate amount of social violence. So the National Center for Education 
Statistics surveyed students nationwide and found that in 2015, 12.6% of the black kids surveyed had had a fight on school grounds while only 56 of white kids had. It was not a fluke year. In 2013, the numbers were 12.8% versus 6.4%. In other words, black kids were over, over twice as likely to engage in violence at school as white kids. Now, he goes on to challenge about these things because how it's interpreted then becomes anti-black. And it's being interpreted by those who are anti-racist. Uh-huh. And they probably don't realize it. And so it has an effect in the way things take place, maybe uh, definitely in culture in general, it could even flow into the church. So he says in one case, reports from a New York City initiative uh, have even uh, more explicitly located an especial uh, problem with school violence among black boys. The initiative sought to reduce suspension of black boys in response to the reports claiming that the suspensions were driven by racism. Teachers reported less order and discipline in their classrooms, particularly in black and Latino dominated secondary schools. And many black teachers said suspensions and similar kinds of discipline should be used more often, despite the fact that black teachers were slightly more likely to believe also that schools discipline uh, could be racially biased. So in the high poverty schools, 60% of African-American teachers, slightly more than 57 of the percent of white teachers said that the issue with student behavior made learning difficult. So here they're saying, we see the problem, but we're afraid to deal with the problem. But then when we deal with the problem, uh, we're not sure whether or not that's a reflection of racism or not. So there's a lot, a lot of confusion and so the question is, how do we, uh, how does this problem get it worked out? And so McWhorter sort of traverses through this and unpacks this matter as carefully well, as possible. You know, is he saying, I mean, he right at the very beginning of the article, or I guess, you know, uh, I guess third paragraph, this sentence, elect ideology hurts black people. When he yes. says elect, I mean, is he talking about the biblical doctrine? No, doctrine? And remember, he, he says at the very beginning, this is not the, it's a religious word. Uh, look at the opening set. One response to a book like this might be our own, that election is a religion. Okay. And you might consider it a better it is it consider it a better one than say believing God's son died for our sins and was reborn um, waiting to envelop you in the eternal grace. This new religion is about con- countering racism. Who could be against that? But we must ask whether the elect, that is those who are the elite, approach actual actuality actually show signs of making any difference in the lives of black people other than making educated white people infantize uh, them, uh, infantize them, while purportedly dismantling racial structures, the elect elite uh, religion, the the religion of the elect is actually harming the people living in those structures. Uh, It is a terrifying, uh, terrifyingly damaging business. So that's what he's referring to. So those who are at the upper echelons who have, so, so on the hands on the lever power levers of power to make decisions and make judgments then about how we keep kids in school, not in school, what, who gets into college and who doesn't, and all that. Uh, they have now given a structure uh, by which 
they are evaluating or maybe a, a grid by which they're evaluating uh, what is appropriate and not appropriate uh, with regard to dealing with race when but that's they're they're controlling it and so they want to do claim to be anti-racist when in fact what they're doing is actually promoting it and probably even making it worse yeah it's a it definitely is um, like i said a very deep article that's uh, what i was this is the one i was really referring to uh, at the uh, onset of the show so uh you know it's it's lengthy as well so it takes a lot to get your uh, your head wrapped around it but uh yeah give it a give it a whirl the and exactly and uh, this is like i said one of those things that mcwhorter's you he does challenge and he is uh by the way he counts himself as part of the progressive side but he also challenges the progressive side uh that sometimes they can uh, they're not as consistent as they should be with what they profess to be doing and what they're actually doing is actually being more racial racist than their anti-racism statements and supposed structures are accomplishing so he he's taking them on very uh, strongly at, at that point okay the number seven uh, article is um will reformed evangelism divide this goes back to the question of vision that we talked about with the number two article uh over racial politics the 19th century stone campbell movement offers a clue now that sounds like a very exotic uh kind of um a thing the this the uh, stone campbell that takes us back to the second great awakening that developed uh, out of in about starting around 1806 in the um, hollers of uh, Kentucky and began to develop eventually uh, into the uh, what would become the churches of Christ, the disciples of Christ and uh, so forth. So in this case, uh, saying what what effect the racism did. And so the Stone Campbell, those were two individuals who were very prominent in the um, uh, movement um, at that point. So so it says no one can reliably predict the future, of course, but for insight into this question about the racial and race and politics, uh, he says the author uh, of this article is Daniel Williams, Daniel K. Williams. He says, um, uh, I'd like to consider the historical experience of another evangelical movement. Now, it's not the church, it's the, the Stone Campbell restorationist movement that eventually did come in to create those or evolve into these uh, churches uh, during the, what is the so-called Second Great Awakening. Uh, anyway, the, the I'd like to consider the historical experience of another evangelical movement that experienced a permanent schism over race and politics in spite of its message of unity and the moderation of its most prominent leader. The uh, movement in 19th century Stone Campbell restorationism and so again it almost sounds like the very thing that mcwhorter was talking about that the very thing you were trying to resolve didn't get resolved because it was made worse by not really looking at the matter probably of race and uh, of course that was uh, pre-civil war days uh, before the country came to its sense during that time and afterwards uh, in terms of how they went about dealing with this so he goes on it says at first glance the stone campbell 
restorationist movement, which eventually gave rise to the churches of Christ and the disciples of Christ, as well as the independent Christian churches, might seem an unusual choice for an analogy with contemporary conservative reformed evangelism. As a product of the heavily Arminian school of uh, Second Great Awakening, the Stone Campbell Restorationist movement uh, was on one of the most strongly anti-Calvinistic Protestant movements in American history. The free will of the unregenerate sinner to choose or reject Christ was a key tenet for the movement. But aside from this point of the theology, which obviously is at odds with the views of the young restless and reformed movement, which we spoke about, uh, of the early 21st century, 19th century Stone Campbell restorationism, restorationism uh, and early 21st century conservative reformed evangelism, evangelicalism, rather, uh, share a great deal in common. Both movements uh, were strongly biblicist, both favored rational and logical appeals over emotional displays, and both promised a textual and theological pathway to the restoration of the original Christian message. In other words, uh, we want to be like a first century church, that notion that's said by a lot of folks. Presaging um, the trans-denominational appeal of 21st century reformed evangelicalism, the 19th century Stone Campbell restorationist movement drew converts from Baptist, Presbyterian, Methodist groups in roughly equal measure. But perhaps most significantly, Stone Campbell restorationism paralleled the Young Restless Reform movement in its view of the church's relationship to politics. Although interested in social and political reform causes, many members of the movement believed that the restoration of the New Testament church offered a pathway to social reform that was superior to what any political party could advocate. Uh, the only problem was that the members of the movement could not agree on what that pathway would, should be. Uh, nowhere was this more evident than the issue of slavery. And so he sets that up as the predicate uh, and unpacks it some more. So is does this movement give any indication, he is saying, historically, of what might happen with the issues of race that, that is part of culture today with the Black Lives Matter, with the Antifa, with um, uh, racism, with uh, the rest of, you know, the reparation movement that seems to be stirring once again. Uh, is there any answer, any help that we'll give here? And so this um, article gives good data uh, for us to look at. And so we'd encourage you to um, look yeah. at it and read it because, I, you know, sometimes history can help. Mm-hmm. If we're aware of how people acted in the past. Yeah, I, I totally agree with that, Dominic. And this is really helpful uh, article. Um, the question is, you know, th- that's what I keep coming back to. Uh, will reformed evangelicalism divide over racial politics? The 19th century Stone Campbell movement offers a clue. Subheadline maintaining Christian unity will require a concerted effort to look past the political labels of the Christians on each side of a political divide and focus on the Orthodox Christian principles. And that's kind of what this idea of the Orthodox Christian principles, um, you know, I'm just thinking to myself, and I I know I have my own biases and my own political persuasions, but I, I just have a feeling a lot of these Orthodox Christian principles, it will be very easy to label them things that are on the right side of the political aisle. 
And um, at least that's my uh, hypothesis here. And so, uh, you know, ditching the political labels, you know, is uh, definitely something that needs to happen. And we just need to rely on the, you know, the word of God, what it says, regardless of, you know, whether or not people might think that now you are something that you don't want to be politically. Let's just forget the labels and let's focus on, you know, what the Bible says, the prescription of living that the Bible provides and have faith in that. And and there's the, again, the, the push, and this is one of the things history teaches, is the desire to try and accomplish something. The, I've sort of come up with a new theory, well, it's probably an old one, but I've just sort of been articulating and thinking about it more recently, that sort of buried deep in the heart of the human race and of human consciousness is a desire to either go back to Eden so that we create the idealism uh, the the loss, you know, uh, no rancor, no sin. Uh, so we're trying to create a utopia uh, that where we can we all just get along. It's Rodney King theology, you know, so that uh, and so we either were pushed uh, to um, uh, that pull back to that and we're trying to recreate that or we're trying to advance or bring the, as Augustine says, the city of God pre- forward from the new Jerusalem when after Jesus comes to the present time. So in either case, we're trying to bring heaven on earth and we're trying to recreate it through um, our uh, philosophical renderings, our religious renderings and so forth. And that's part of what is a drive. Now, there's that's good in the sense that it gives, we, we realize that what we're in is distressing. It's not good. But this is exactly what Paul talks about in Romans 8, where he says the whole creation is groaning. It's suffering under the weight of the fact that it's cursed and the curse will not be lifted until Jesus comes again. And there'll be the restoration of the uh, heavens and the earth uh, where the redeemed will then live in perfect righteousness and utopia will then be accomplished. We're trying to either go back to it or trying to bring it forward from the uh, what the future is and that creates our tension point and so can we have utopia can we have a, a, a culture that really gets rid of all of the evidences of the fall and the of the the brokenness of the and sinfulness of the human heart and the answer the scripture gives us no but we keep trying yeah we absolutely do and that brings us then to the next article, because it also seems to touch on this. And this is uh, number eight, written by Carl Truman in First Things. And uh, he calls it a victory for reality. And he's talking about a, a case in the United States Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals. And the background to it in this says, in this context, he, uh, Carl Truman says, I've noticed recently that numerous correspondents have begun to identify their, quote, preferred pronouns in the bylines as the bottom, uh, um, at the bottom of their emails. Uh, yet it is already uh, clear that the notion of, quote, preference functions somewhat like a volunteer did at my old school. It was really code for it's required. And any deviation or refusal might not simply cause personal offense, but lead to more significant and sinister consequences. 
Such was the matter in the case of Meriwether versus Hartop, a uh, a case decided last week. Uh, this is a couple weeks ago now by the United States Sixth Circuit Court of Appeals, Nicholas Merriweather, a philosophy professor at Shawnee State University in Ohio, had found himself in trouble for initially refusing to use the preferred pronouns of a transgender student, parenthesis uh, referred to as, quote, Doe, in the court filings, because this would require him to act against conscience. Professor Merriweather is a devout Christian and therefore believes the, that reality is more than a linguistic or psychological construct. Merriweather had suggested numerous ways in which the concerns of all parties might be met, including using the preferred pronouns, but adding a note to the syllabus that stated he was doing this, quote, under compulsion, and that set forth his, quote, personal religious beliefs about gender and identity. Nothing less than full, unqualified capitulation would satisfy either Doe, uh, which is the one who wanted to be called with a certain uh, uh, pronouns, or the university administration uh, represented by the dean. In the end, Meriwether was clearly the target of a campaign to neutralize him by any means uh, necessary. And so the court's ruling, he's, uh, Truman says, should be read in full. The evident incompetence and malice of the administration is impressive as it initially flip-flops on whether the, it, an acceptable compromise is possible and then descends into open hostility towards Merriweather, including, uh, but as the lawyers say, uh, not limited to open mockery, derision of his faith, and an investigation for which he was not asked to provide any witnesses. So he basically says, lead this uh, decision by the Sixth Circuit on this where they uh you know basically said this was not uh, an appropriate thing uh they took the uh, sixth circuit took meriwether's side he says the opening paragraph of the verdict states what should be obvious uh but it now is apparently somewhat challenging to many in higher education and here's the opening sentence paragraph traditionally american universities have been beacons of intellectual diversity and academic freedom uh, they have prided themselves on being forums where con controversial ideas are discussed and debated, and they have tried not to stifle debate by picking sides. But Shawnee State chose a different route. Uh, it punished a professor for his speech on a hotly contested issue, and it did so despite the constitutional protections afforded by the First Amendment. The uh, district court dismissed the professor's free speech and free exercise claims. We see things differently and we reverse. So there it's uh, very clear uh, that we have this imposition. Um, you know, this is the cultural norm and you will uh, give obedience and resistance is futile. And that's basically what was being said. The Sixth Circuit said no way. Yeah, and this is, uh, uh, you know, M Carl Truman goes on to editorialize, most important in this regard is the court's observation that pronoun usage is now a matter of deep public concern as evidenced by the university's own policy on the issue, and that this has implications for the First Amendment in its application to educational institutions. Uh, again, reading from the verdict here, quote, the premise that gender identity is an idea embraced and advocated by increasing numbers of people is all the more reason to protect the First Amendment rights of those who wish to voice a different view. 
And this is particularly true in the context of the college classroom, where students' interest in hearing even contrarian views is also at stake. Teachers and students must always remain free to inquire, to study, to evaluate, to gain new maturity and understanding. And they cite some court cases. Um, The efficient provision of services by university actually depends to a degree on the dissemination in public uh, fora of controversial speech implicating matters of public concern. Now, and then uh, go read the article if you want Carl Trubin to cut through the legalese on that for you. But this was a big victory, like he said, of reality of, you know, we're, we're going to we're going to protect people's rights to really this. You know, we've seen this up in Canada. You know, uh, Canada has been trying to compel speech. This is what that's just why this is so dangerous. We it's not that you I mean, they're, they're literally trying on the left in this country to compel you to use words that they want you to use. It's a it's really like the complete inversion of freedom of speech when you're trying to force people in a totalitarian way to use pronouns that you disagree with. And so this is a big victory, and, and let's hope that it sends a message. It, it is, and it's uh, something that we're facing uh, very much. And it goes back to those other two articles that we read. So there is a connection going on here because this the whole idea of cancel culture that you've already referred to uh, is so dominant. Uh, if you don't speak you know, what is now considered the new orthodoxy and whatever – area you are, whether it's university or church or in the public square or wherever. Uh, and so you're uh, you're canceled if you don't do and say it just like we wanted to uh, you to say it. And so here comes a courtroom and says, no, uh, the the words have meaning. Let's uh, let let there be the free exercise of speech. More speech is better than less speech, more light better than less light. And uh, let's not expect everyone to come along. So it goes back to the problem that Young Restless Reform had. They were they were basically doing a form of uh, cancel culture in a different kind of way. They weren't stopping people from using words, but they were saying, you, if you really, really, really want to be in the know, they, you're going to you know be join us. Uh, and the same thing with the the Stone uh, Campbell uh, Restoration Movement. That same thing. Uh, they put everything once we put things in a very narrow box and you have to fit all that criteria that's where you get into a problem which then brings us to the ninth article which deals with the same thing again and and it's you know it's not a matter of whether you like what somebody is saying uh in this case it's this is uh scott clark from westminster seminary in california how the tide is shifting and he says and not in a good way and he's basically dealing with exactly the same topic that we've just been looking at with the Congress reform, the Stone Campbell restorationism, also with uh, what uh, Carl Truman said with regard to the uh, Shawnee University uh, case. And this one, though, dealt with uh, a episode coming out of the NCAA tournament, a basketball tournament just recently, where some folks as the Oral Roberts University uh, basketball team was rising through ranks, made it to the Sweet 16, that there were some people who said they should be kicked out because they didn't meet the criteria of using, quote, the new orthodoxy, whatever that was. And so a, uh, in this article that um, that, that uh, Scott Clark writes, he says, Robert's dubious theologi- theology, and by the way, he says, I'm not a fan 
he says, of Oral Roberts and their theology. It's a movement that comes out of a Pentecostalism and uh, and all that, you know, and he so he has no uh, delight in them, counts them as, you know, brothers in Christ and that kind of thing. But uh, Roberts' dubious theology, referring to Oral Roberts as a uh, person and also the institution, and physical management notwithstanding, every American who still believes in the founding principles of this country ought to come to the aid of Oral Roberts University. Indeed, once upon a time, that is exactly what such organizations as the American Civil Liberties Union, uh, Union would have done. Why? Uh, Hemno uh, Javeri, uh, in the pages of USA Today, has called for the exclusion of Oral Roberts. And of course, this goes back to the tournament uh, just within the last month. Uh, of the exclusion of Oral Roberts University's men's basketball team from the NCAA tournament on the basis that ORU's traditional ethnic ethic influence by holiness and Pentecostal traditions, of which uh, Javari apparently uh, knows nothing, offends her late modern sensibilities. So ORU forbids homosexual activity, and it also forbids heterosexual sex outside of marriage. Uh, Javari uh, calls such prohibitions antiquated. Uh, and then he also mentioned, so President Obama's objection on professor of religious grounds in 2008 uh, to homosexual marriage also places him outside of the pale. Should uh, be called canceled. Should he be then canceled because he once held religious views that Javari now finds objectionable. And so he basically quotes, uh, has this quote, the Or Roberts wants to uh, to keep its students tied to toxic notions of fundamentalism that fetishize chastity, abstinence, and absurd hemlines is a larger cultural issue than can, that can be debated. What is not up for debate, however, is their anti-LGBTQ plus stance, which is nothing short of discriminatory and should be expressly condemned by the NCAA. So then uh, uh, Dr. Uh, Scott um, Clark rather pulls out uh, toxic fetishes, discriminatory, condemned, and there's more. Um, so any institution that holds anything like historic Christian sexual ethics should be banned from NCAA competition, he asks. Is that <clears throat> what do we want? So it comes to the same thing. Um, so the tide is shifting towards a restrictive, towards the cancel culture, uh, less speech, more less light, and the like. And so he takes on this matter. I don't have to like it, but I'm going to defend your freedom to express it. Yeah. And then that's the principle here. I also like his um, comments on really just how far, just how late and far the culture is, you know, gotten from, you know, this, um, this, this biblical worldview or this Christian ethic. Um, when he says this, this is my favorite part of the article. My scope here is to note the rapidly shifting cultural norms in which Christians are conducting their pilgrimage. It is also to say that those Christians who think that they can, to shift metaphors, surf the latest cultural tide to remain relevant are quite mistaken. The good news is that there is, as they say in football, daylight between the pagans and the Christians. There was a time when polite society required Americans to pretend to sympathize with historic Judeo-Christian ethical norms, even as they defied them privately. That time is past. The truth is that Christians who understand and believe Christian ethical norms are a diminishing lot. 
We might wish that the post-millennialists were right, but all the evidence is to the contrary. Much of evangelical cultural engagement has been driven by the transformational model, but transformationalism, at least as it was originally envisioned, has evidently failed. You know, this this part was was just really uh, refreshing to read because I I believe this. I believe it is very true Um, and specifically how this nod to Judeo-Christian ethical norms in public is diminishing. And it used to be that they would at least give us lip service, but they don't even, they don't, they're not even really doing that now. And I was having a talk, Dominic, uh, with a a friend of mine about, you know, really from a, from a government standpoint, you know, our secular government, you know, there's a lot of things that these politicians are, are, are really now ashamed to say. So they may be against something that is immoral, and it's plainly spelled out that it is immoral in the Bible, right? But they're never going to say that because they've been told that that's not polite, meaning I'm against this issue because it's not what God wants. I, instead, it's I'm against this issue because it's not good for us as a society. Well, I mean, that's true. But there is no longer this, uh, you know, we, we don't really want to stand up and say, you know, this is wrong because first and foremost, this it just goes against what God wants for us. And, you know, that is, you know, and I, I know a lot of people are, you know, uh, uh, terrified of what they call Christian nationalism. But I really think that this uh, this movement that, that's getting labeled as that is really just wanting leaders uh, in our in our admittedly secular society, to stop, uh, you know, to stop, you know, riding the fence here, and you know, if you're for something, tell us why you're for it, but don't, you know, don't try to dumb it down or don't try to be ashamed of, you know, the goodness of God and the things that He disapproves of. And uh, anyway, that, that, those were my thoughts as I was reading this article. Yeah, well, it, and it is something that is part of our culture. It, and we also, you know, while it's in culture, it's also in the church. So it has its effects uh, in that regard as to what kind of things you can say or not say um, theologically or culturally or, uh, you know, whatever. And so it, it's an important uh, notion for us. And again, a good read uh, between what uh, Carl Truman says and what um, Carl, uh, Scott Clark says, they both of those really uh, push us to understand, you know, how how can we, again, in a rational, reasonable way, speak in the world and have the liberty to do so without having to uh, fit into uh, somebody's preconceived box ahead of time, which is basically what can- cancel culture does. And then, well, we come to our last one, which uh, sort of gives a... <laughs> An illustration, um, in a certain way, uh, of the, some of the main themes that we're we were talking about uh, that of the top ten. Uh, there are no egalitarians when the dog attacks. That's an interesting title. No egalitarians when the dog attacks by G. Uh, J. Um, excuse me, G. Shane Morris, and he says he was just riding home with his uh, five-year-old son and. He was uh, the son was talking about uh, certain things. He said, I like fighting. I love swords and so forth. And uh, I like to kill the bad guys. You know, the imagination that uh, boys like to play cops and robbers or cowboys and Indians and all that kind of thing. And uh, and in our general 
culture now we've sort of moved away from it. many parents confronted with such warlike wealth might uh, try to pacify him our society has progressed beyond the days when boys toys aisles stocked cap cap guns and claymores uh, heck we we've progressed to the beyond the point of boys toils out to, toil aisles even together so he so uh, morris is talking about uh, and you know he was in essence trying to how to help his son understand well yes where do those emotions come from and those desires with um uh, to sort of be uh you know a gr- more aggressive and let the testosterone work and so he refers uh, morris does to an event that bridger walker who's a six-year-old wyoming boy was that subject of that story that he shared uh, this little warrior knows better than many males my age with masculinity, what masculinity means. According to an Instagram post published by his aunt, Bridger leapt in front. Remember, he was uh, six, uh, six years old, uh, leapt in front of a charging dog to save his four year old sister. And the photographs of the aftermath are difficult to stomach. CNN reports that Bridger underwent two-hour surgery that required more than 90 stitches to restore the left side of his face. His sister was unharmed, and the picture of the two together afterwards brought me to tears. I can only imagine what sort of relationship they will have for the rest of their lives. When his father asked him, asked Bridger, why he threw himself between the dog and his sister, Bridger reportedly answered, if someone had to die, I thought it should be me. So recounting that story in the very home, I told my son that God gave him his spiting instincts for this purpose. So that's basically what he shares that story. And that's uh, when the dog is charging. Uh, who is it that's going to stand in the gap and fight against the charging dog or whatever else may be a threat? And he's arguing here in this article for fact that it's not uh, something that... Um, doesn't mean a girl wouldn't maybe stand in front of a charging dog and take on take it on but it's that the god made us distinct uh he's arguing for that uh, and uh, says that maybe we should honor that instead of trying to quell whatever it is that god himself has built male and female about so no egalitarian when it comes to charging dogs also, yeah, it's very similar to there are no atheists in foxholes. There are no yes. egalitarians when the dog attacks. And I, I just think it's, this is this is a great article to end on. And, you know, I also just think about in the culture, specifically in American context, where we have the culture really diminishing, uh, you know, uh, the the masculinity that is God given masculinity. Um I don't have a son if I did or if I ever do. I, I really am just in, impressed on this idea of, um, you know, preparing him to, and God forbid, there would ever have to be a war, you know, and, and I've read a book on this too, but, you know, preparing and raising a, a man to to have the, the ethics and the principles to, you know, to defend the defenseless, if that ever happens and right now we live in a society that would say that no that's that's wrong you know um and that's what they're that's what they're getting you know remember the gillette commercial remember that where they was it for razors i mean the most masculine thing facial hair managing facial hair and they they have a thing about how boys shouldn't fight and and how we're contributing to this this terrible destructive patriarchy society when we don't step in and stop boys from fighting 
I mean, you know, it's just too much. It's just it's just too much. And yet here is an example of the real world, just like the other article about a victory for reality with a professor that doesn't want to use the pronouns. You know, everyday life, we have the confirmation of what the reality is. And, and, and this is one of those instances versus what they're trying to tell us, which is, no, we get to define our own reality, which is really just an uh, a very specific, pronounced declaration against the God that created this world and each one of us. Exactly. And also what these, all these articles, including this one here has done is that we go, culture goes through cycles. And right now we're going through the cycle. We're trying to remove things or let somebody's self identity be what controls the narrative for culture in general. And, uh, but we can see that again, the, to use my overused phrase here, the ash heap of history is littered with and stocked with uh, these kinds of movements where there's restrictions. And so there's always a reaction to that. And hopefully the reaction is not to go overboard and then create another reaction, but is that to bring back things into uh, more of a leveled playing field where we are able to think. But that that's what happens if, if history teaches. We go through these cycles and we're at the cycle right now where the it's the idea is to bind everything, put everybody in a box, and the food where the, there's a, a rupture against that, uh, and it's it, it will it, it begins to fix itself, but it's at a terrible cost. Yeah. So here, this is the uh, cooler report and weekly review, and uh, trust that these review of these ten uh, top ten articles from last week are good tease to you and if you haven't read them or you need to read them again then they'll definitely be brought to your attention in the newsletter that will come to you tomorrow and we trust that you will take time to uh, just go to the vehiclereport.com once a day maybe just uh, scroll through and see if any headline or any tease uh, catches your fancy if not at least once a week you will get the uh, at least 10 of the articles where you can review what we what is happening and we trust that it will be helpful to you personally, to your family, to your small group, maybe what's going on in your life of your church, and uh, that oh, your minds and hearts will be stirred to uh, take creative action. So thank you for being part of our uh, weekly review, and trust the Lord will bless you as you walk before him. And one programming note, uh, we will not be having uh, an Equal Report in weekly review podcast next week. So sorry, folks. Thank you.